Welcome to episode 19 of Once Upon a Lifetime. We are back with our sixth episode about Andrew Carnegie. He has recently gotten married. He is spending about half of his time in Scotland and half in America. And his relationship with the labor that do the work of his steel plants is very positive, And he has a reputation for being fair, very fair and generous. We will see whether or not that continues. I want to talk for one minute, a little introduction to another important relationship in Carnegie's life. Um, also complicated, you know, doesn't start out, well, it starts out okay, actually, it doesn't end so well. Um, but Henry Clay Frick. So we have talked about the importance of having both coke and iron ore in the process of making steel. Well, Henry Clay Frick owned all the coke fields that were in the region. And Andrew Carnegie buys Henry Clay Frick Coke Company stock at Frick's invitation. Frick needs capital. Frick needs some money because he's been borrowing heavily to buy these coke fields. And Carnegie needs coke. So it's kind of a match made in heaven. Andrew ends up owning 74% of that firm, of that company, though. And Frick is given a 2% share in Carnegie stock because one of the other reasons they make this deal is that Frick is like, oh, you know where the real money is going to be in steel. I don't really want to just do Coke and provide Coke to steelmakers. I want to be in steel itself. So he kind of gets his foot in the door this way. So this is my intro to Frick's presence in the Carnegie Corporation. And then I want to go back here. We're going to do a little labor dispute update. I feel like I should have a little sound effect for that. <laughs> like the horn or like what's the whistle like? Woo, you know, <laughs> there had been all these strikes all over the country about the eight hour work day. And they were all over the place. It wasn't steel related, really. It was just labor related. Everybody wanted an eight hour work day nationwide strikes. Andrew writes all these newspaper articles saying, oh, this is just very temporary and it's just part of the process. It's part of the evolutionary process. We're moving from agrarian to industrialization. There's going to be some unpleasant striking, but then we'll get through it and everything is going to be so great, guys. Just wait. It's going to be great. Well, he's kind of wrong about that. Well, as we know now, he's quite wrong about that. But even back then, it just wasn't very temporary. There had been about five years of these strikes happening. About once a year, the labor contracts would be negotiated by his plant managers, and they'd be in effect for about one year. Like I said, they would shut it down in December, and then they would renegotiate in January. During the shutdown, they would do the regular maintenance on the equipment over Christmas. While the shutdown was happening, the workers were on unpaid furlough. It was never perfectly smooth. Every year, leading up to Christmas, which is just kind of sad, right? You know, right. everyone's tensions are up. Like, everybody's feeling like, oh, okay, is there going to be a strike? Like, what are we going to do this year? Well, in January 1888, they've been shut down already for a few weeks. 
Carnegie announces in the newspaper that although pig iron prices are down 20%, he's only going to ask for a 10% reduction in wages. So there's this is a good faith effort on his part. There's goodwill every, everywhere. Everybody's like, what a nice thing to do. The union doesn't agree immediately. But in February, they say, okay, well, we'll consider arbitration on this deal if the contract only takes us to July 1st. So this is kind of one of these sort of interesting tidbits that I picked up along the road, that this is a bigger deal than you would think at first. The union does not want, they don't think that in February or January, they can muster enough enthusiasm for a strike because the men have already been out of work because of the unpaid furlough. And so they're hungry. It's winter. They don't have gardens in the winter to live off of during a strike. Plus, fuel is expensive to heat the houses. So the workers really, it's just hard to convince them like, oh, yeah, this is a great time to go hungry. (laughs) It's a little easier in July Mm -hmm. to go hungry, you know, go hungry with cash hungry anyway, because you're not actually needing to be hungry because you could have a garden. So there's also a depression in steel prices in the winter because No one is building as much with steel in the winter as they are in the summer, so orders are down. And so every time they negotiate their contract based on how much the pig iron is selling for, they're negotiating at a low point in prices. So the the unions think, we'll have a better time negotiating higher wages in July when it's kind of a boom time. And strikes will be more effective because people won't be as hungry and cold. So this is this big negotiating point for this particular year of 1888. So there's no deal. The unions won't make this deal and the company won't make a deal because they don't want this summer negotiation change. The weeks drag on and Andrew comes to Pittsburgh, but instead of meeting with the unions, he meets only with his partners. Then he publishes an article. Now, remember, he's a friend to union. You know, everyone's expecting Andrew's going to swoop in and he's going to make this go away because he loves labor. So he publishes an article about how Chicago is actually getting an edge on Pittsburgh because they pay their labor less and their cachet of coke and iron in the Great Lakes was turning out to be even larger than the Pittsburgh caches. So this is not actually a ploy. It was a real thing. It was really a concern. He had started out as the top iron and steel producer, but he wasn't going to stay there very long if he kept letting Chicago kind of edge him out on these things. So he loves Pittsburgh. He doesn't want to move his companies to the Chicago area, but he knows that in order to be competitive, he's going to have to slash wages. So, you know, it's capitalism, it's markets. He really believes the world needs to keep Carnegie Steel competitive. He studies all the statistics and he saw he's spending significantly more on labor than the Chicago area plants, probably because he has unions in his plants. And now they also have this advantage on the iron ore from the location. So in order to serve the world better, he has to cut down on labor costs. It's very simple. He's like Seabiscuit. You know, when Seabiscuit pulls up to the other horse, he's got to look him in the eye. And then when he sees him in the eye, he's like, I'm going to win this race. (laughs) Like Chicago is to Carnegie what the other horse is to Seabiscuit. So another month goes by. Carnegie meets with some union officials in New York, and he offers them a different deal, a totally different one than Captain Jones had offered them. 
And this one is reported by the newspapers as revolutionary and brilliant. and Oh, so very eminently fair. Um, the, what they'll do is every single month, the workers will have their wage reevaluated based on a sliding scale of the cost of the iron ore, which sounds to me miserable. Like, how do you plan for that? Well, I mean, these are the days where usually the worker would, a good husband would turn over his paycheck to the wife and she'd have to try to figure out how to make it work. And I can just imagine, how is she going to make it I know, the planning alone. Yes. The planning alone stresses me out. But Budgeting nightmare. People think it's great. Now, the unions don't sign on right away. Partly because of this whole thing that he's still not saying, like, July will be fine. You know, he's still not making the date change. Um, But they also are just a little bit suspect. So the thing is, Carnegie suggested this because he actually knew the monthly sliding scale would save him money in the long run. He did not think Captain Jones was going far enough with that 10% wage cut. Um, He's also, he's not told him yet, but he is going to cut their work day or he's going to increase it to 12 hours again after they have had an eight-hour day for a long time. He feels he needs to do this because of all the inefficiency. And because they go to a 12-hour workday, they get rid of 20% of the entire workforce. So the union is just not going to go with that. So another month goes by. This time, Captain Jones oils the machinery as if he's putting it into a deep sleep, like, this is the end. We will not be operating anytime soon. But then on Thursday, April 19, he drives through and he calls all the minor bosses in and he says, show up to work on Monday. All positions are open. Whoever signs the contract first gets the position. And then by Sunday, there are already Pinkerton guards guarding the mills. So brief detour into the Pinkertons. Okay, the the Pinkertons, actually, they're detective agency that they were started by another Scotsman who was a barrel maker who just happened upon a gang of counterfeiters one day plotting their plot, planning their plan. He overheard (laughs) them, put a stop to it and gained a reputation for kind of being the, um, you know, like a great detective sort of guy. And he he turns this into a business and the Pinkertons kind of have their little footnote in most historical little things there. I mean, they were the ones that were stopping train robbers or infiltrating um, the Jesse James gang. Um, They stopped a presidential assassination. Maybe or maybe not. Okay. Oh, yeah. I didn't read that deeply into it. Yes. They are reputed to have stopped a presidential assassination. And that is actually a very great episode of one of my favorite shows, Drunk History. Oh, yeah. That's a fun one. Um, But I have read elsewhere that did he make that up for publicity and basically convince the president that he was going to be assassinated? I don't know. Who knows? Well, that's the thing about the Pinkertons is they are... (laughs) They're almost like the Central Park Rangers of the movie Elf. You know, like they're these big, heavy... (laughs) Yeah. They're kind of thugs. I mean, they're sort of thugs, but depending on whose side you are on the labor versus management dispute, they're either like evil thugs or they're kind of superheroes with capes. By any means necessary kind of guys. Yes. By this time, this is several decades after the Pinkertons have gotten their start. They're used almost exclusively now as strike breakers. And the management couldn't rely on the sheriffs and the official government security presence. Well, anybody local is likely to be related to or have some interest in labor workers in the labor. That's right. Yeah. So they were finding that they had no 
kind of recourse to protect the plant property or the management, the, the staff, you know, like the violence was getting out of control, which it was in a lot of cases. So the Pinkertons kind of came in as privately hired thugs and security guards. They're like the bouncers of the strike movement. You know, you yes. bring them in, you're like, bounce these people. Um, so anyway, Captain Jones has called in Pinkertons. Um, now, up to this point, Carnegie had always said he would never endorse bringing in substitutes or scabs. He thought this was just really unfair to the working man. The labor that they provide is all that they have to live on. And so if you replace them with some other worker, that is just tempting them to violence. So he just thinks it's unfair to ask laborers to stand by and look at scabs coming in and taking their work. But the Pinkertons definitely indicate the scabs are welcome because the Pinkertons protect scabs. That's sort of their job. Now, he claimed decades later under oath that he did not even know the Pinkertons had ever even been brought to the Edgar Thompson Mills. And he says they would have had no need of them. Why would they even have them? And Captain Jones took full responsibility for that decision himself. So who can tell if Carnegie actually knew that they had been brought in or not? Either way, there was all this pressure to open the steel mill because the steel market was kind of revving back to life and they just could not wait anymore with this strike. So Wednesday, Jones told the newspaper he'd rather have the old men back, but was in the meantime preparing temporary houses within the works so that they could bring substitutes in on the B&O railroads, which ran directly into the works. The scabs didn't even have to get through the front gate. So there was really no way to even have violence towards the substitutes because they were just going to come right in on the railroad, get off at at the station within the works and go to work. And then they were going to live in the houses that were in the works. Right, so, so there's no running a picket line situation. There's nothing. There's just like, so basically the unskilled workers on Friday who aren't actually a part of the union, but they had been having a sympathy strike and solidarity said, union, you have until Monday and then we're going to go in because this is getting bad and we're all going to lose our jobs. So that Wednesday, even the skilled labor had started going back to work and you know, that trickle kind of moves into like a wider and faster river. And the union makes this half-hearted effort to at least be allowed to stay a union in the plant. But Joan says, no way, I'm not ever going to negotiate with you guys again. Mm. And so that's it. That's, that is the end of the union. And this union is called the Knights of Labor. That's the end of the union at the Edgar Thompson Steelworks. And it's sort of a, like a not that difficult of a strike for the company, it was sort of a best case scenario, like a few months out of work, no violence. We didn't really lose anybody, but now we're paying what we think is market price. We can compete with Chicago better. Like For them, it's ideal. For the workers, they have now a 12-hour work day. There's a sliding scale with no floor, mm. and there's no unions. So this does not sit well with them. But they're pretty desperate for work, so they just keep going. But this is an important prequel to a more important labor dispute we will talk about a few years from now. In 1889, he writes The Gospel of Wealth, which is probably his most famous. It's kind of just an article, really. It's right. It becomes a book, but it starts out more, I think, as a series of of articles and, and then a pamphlet. But it's... 
it's kind of a, a groundbreaking book for the time. He is more or less preaching to his fellow millionaires and telling them what they ought to do with all of the unbelievable amount of wealth that they're accumulating. He says there's always going to be vast inequalities. There's always going to be people like him. And this is a good thing because it's better for there to be vast inequalities than for everyone to live in squalor. And if you're a person who has acquired great wealth, you should be aware that you amassed this fortune on the backs of many laborers, that your money that you think you have really belongs to the community. So he decides, he's, he's already decided himself to give away his money. This, though, is him preaching to his fellow extreme rich friends that they also should really be giving away their money to. But it's all very relative because I think that on the sliding scale of like what is, for example, setting an example of modest and unostentatious living. Yeah. I think that means something very different for men of Carnegie's level of wealth than it That's would right. for, I don't know. Sure. Your, your middle class. Sure. Victorian. Like he says, he says, you, you first, you should set an example of modest and unostentatious living, shunning display to provide moderately. Moderately is another one of those. You're like relatively right. moderately for the legitimate wants of those dependents upon him. And after doing so, consider all the surplus revenues that come to you simply as trust funds, which you are strictly bound as a matter of duty to administer in the manner in which your judgment is best calculated to provide the most beneficial results for the community. So he says surplus wealth must sometimes flow into the hands of a few in a sacred trust to be administered during the life of the possessor for the good of their fellow men. The man who dies thus rich dies disgraced. So he very much believes that the money has been given to him, not just for him to use. So, I mean, right. it's a sacred trust. But there is, as you pointed right. out, zero sacrifice involved. No, no. It's just because like he can time. do absolutely whatever he wants and he like is wildest dreams and he will still have surplus wealth. Yes. And he does live in comparison, maybe to the Astors or the Vanderbilts, like to other great families, he doesn't go on for such a display. But it does cost money to have your organists and your bagpipers and your paneled libraries. And I mean, this well, this is... he does not live in ostentation in America, but he does in Scotland. Well, he is Lord of the Manor in Scotland. Yes. And it's fine in, in the old world. That kind of display and lifestyle is not just accepted, it's kind it's of admired. Homage to history, too, in a way of like, this is the tradition. Keep it up. Yeah. And to be fair, people who have met him have always spoken about how warm he was, how the library was always a main feature of his home, the gathering around the dining table that... It's domestic. Yes. Well, notable visitors. Louise would have them sign their the tablecloth and she would later embroider their names. You know, it was just it was a very, like I said, domestic and like it, it wasn't a display of power. No, no, he was. But but you are right that it's relative that it's, you know, You're right. They had, you know, only like a, when two bagpipers have been ostentatious. <laughs> Right. As opposed to the one or... Well, like, instead of having a five-lot 
New York City mansion built. They you had a just take two the corner. Right. Yeah, they had a two lot. You know, New York City mansion built, right. which it is a lot less than the people around them. It's also two lots in New right. York. You know, it was large. It's it was just comfortable. So interesting because it's it's still far more than than one could ever really realistically dream of. Right, right. But he in eighty nine he wrote the Gospel of Wealth. That brings us to the next thing happening in 89, which is my next labor versus management update. Number three. I think there's four total, so I apologize. Just fast forward if you're bored to tears. Um, At Homestead, they have brought in machinery. Now, Homestead is that plant with the mismanagement before that was across the river from Edgar Thompson. So at Homestead, they brought in machinery to improve the production of pig iron, which is crude iron just out of the furnace. I had to look that up, obviously. I'm not walking around with pig iron knowledge in my brain. So the workers weren't actually working harder. The machinery was doing more of their job. So they were making kind of more money than they were working for is the way the partners saw it. Andrew and and all the partners wanted to introduce a new wage scale that was tied to how much finished product was produced. Now, conveniently, up the river a little bit, a new steel mill had opened non-union and was paying their workers lower. So in this case, Andrew thinks he's definitely morally got the upper hand. How can his laborers complain about getting a wage cut when up the river, those workers are being paid even less? So public opinion, he thinks, is going to be on his side with this particular wage cut. Um, And he's sort of blaming the unions for the problems like well if you weren't demanding so much then we wouldn't even have this problem so he's kind of becoming maybe less a friend to labor at this point maybe it's not so clear in his mind that he's a friend to labor i think he gets frustrated when labor is slowing him down or holding him back he's always going full bore ahead and i think even his own ideals if they tend to weigh on him i, I don't know right well in the yeah. meantime Remember, I did my little introduction to Frick. Well, Frick is now the CEO of Carnegie Steel. He's running the company day to day, and he has opinions too. And he's really hard-nosed anti-union manager, much more so than Andrew. Because they had just acquired Homestead, this plant, they feel that it was never run well, and that it's always had too many workers doing too little work, and that to kind of bring it up to the efficiency standards that Carnegie Steel has, they need to make some serious changes. And getting the union out of there is going to be one of those important things. Frick had only been chairman for six months at this point and the the CEO for six months. So Andrew's kind of trying to build him up and give him confidence. And they're both like, yes, let's get rid of the unions. This This is what we should do. But... It kind of falls apart, and basically the unions win. And this, not only does the unions win, but they end up with a three-year contract. So all of a sudden, all their plans are put on hold, and Frick and Carnegie are, because their superintendent had made the deal with the union, they can't really do anything about it. They just have to wait. But they are waiting. So... That was my, that's the third update. The fourth update is going to be the Homestead battle, which is what we've kind of been leading up to. It's this really crisis moment in Carnegie Steel operations. 
So back at home in, in Carnegie's home life, another event happens and Louise's mother, who'd been ill for a long time, finally dies. And this is really sad for Louise, but she does now she's not torn between, you know, being close to her mother and then traveling with Andrew. She can be with him all the time. And they she ends up kind of bringing along her sister, Stella. So from now on, if Louise and Andrew are somewhere, Stella is also there. She just becomes a part of their a household from here on out. So in 1891, Louise has a terrible case of typhoid fever. That typhoid fever. It's awful. And Andrew must have been terrified. Last time typhoid came, it nearly took him and his mother and brother, his whole family were just wiped out. And so to the thought of losing Louise for Andrew would have been just unthinkable that it just wasn't going to be an option. So his every one of his letters to anyone at that time, he just includes little updates about her. It's really sweet. It is so sweet because he thinks this is world news. (laughs) This is absolutely like every kind of business update ends with like, you know, oh, Louise ate a little broth today. Or, you know, Louise was awake for an hour longer than she was yesterday. I mean, just this is on the front of his mind here. He did not expect that, marrying a woman 20 years younger than him. No, no. And so she's bedridden for several months. And she just, you know, has those little ups and downs in health. And so, you know, happily, she does make a recovery. But for Andrew, this was a close, close call. Right, right. Now, in he has, uh, Frick has, is running the company. In order to kind of give him enough buy-in to want to like work hard and run the company, Carnegie has sold him 9% more of his stock to increase his interest. Frick, though, is running the company. He's also having a personal crisis at the time. His daughter, Martha, is five years old. When she was two, she swallowed a pin. She has had a whole lifetime of infections and internal injuries. And surgery back then was as dangerous as not doing surgery. It's Well, and where is the pin? How could they know by now? I mean, you can't rummage around someone's insides without an x-ray or anything like that. That's right. Yeah. So there was just really no option. So right now in 91, she's five and she's dying. And it's interesting the difference between how Andrew was constantly updating Frick on Louise's condition. Oh, you know, but Andrew is not being told boo by Frick about Martha dying. Frick is, he's really not in this for friendship. Right. It's almost like he's in the new wave of partners. Like the partners, the Henry Phipps and Tom Carnegie and Andrew Carnegie, they were all very fraternal. There was a very bond, very much bond there. And, And Frick is all business. He's He's very... uh, He's a very closed person. Right. And Carnegie is so sanguine and really cares about the people in his life. It's difficult for him, and he does not let Frick get away with it, really. He's constantly asking Frick for updates. So Frick does not... He mentions it once, finally. He kind of mentions, I have a very sick little girl. But that is it. He never talks about it again. Um, He's traveling back and forth all summer from his vacation home, also in Crescent, where Andrew's vacation home was, and Pittsburgh. It's about 80-mile difference. Um, You know, he cleans up after this strike, or he handles this thing in the business. You know, he's sort of near-breaking mentally, but he never says a word to Andrew, and she dies one week short of her sixth birthday. And this begins Andrew's, like, assault. It's practically an assault in every letter. He's like, (laughs) Frick, you really need to, you know, go on vacation. 
take a holiday. Go to Italy. Really, Italy is beautiful. Italy would be great for you. You should really see Rome. It's quite wonderful. It should take you and Mrs. Frick. I mean, it's like he thinks that going to Italy is going to solve the death the loss you know it's just it's not going to work i get it it's coming from a place of concern and love but if i were frick i'd be like for heaven's sake leave me alone stop telling me to go on vacation i'm not going on vacation frick is obviously the kind of man who when he is mourning wants to throw himself into work to get himself over that period of time he is not a man who wants to go eat pasta which is maybe the wrong choice but still Right. And, you know, Frick, even though he sounds like he's a very like cold or, or tough man, he mourned Martha like it was an obsession for the rest of his life. He would have portraits made of her and busts and he had her image, her likeness was engraved on his bank checks so that his ancestor, she also is named Martha for generations in his family. The Fricks, they all had daughters named Martha. So his ancestor Martha here says that every transaction that Frick ever made, every bill he ever paid, every debt he ever settled, every painting he ever bought was settled in the memory of Martha. So It's not that it doesn't touch him deeply. No. But he does not want to... He doesn't want to share his pain. No. He doesn't want to share anything. He's not a generous man in the way that Carnegie is, who will share his joys and his fears and his hopes and his wealth. And they could not be more opposite. No, no. they're just utter opposites. You know, Carnegie in the meantime is like the fishing is great at Clooney. <laughs> I mean, his letters, I cannot even deal at this point with the letters because they're right. like, you should really go to Italy. The fishing is super over here. I, I just he's just just unrelenting and is trying to cheer you up. And he is. You just cannot. And he just wants to work. He wants to get through this by working. Like, stop reminding me. Yeah. So 92. We're there. We finally made it. The Battle of Homestead. <laughs> yay. <laughs> uh, it's not yay, but I oh have been wanting like you got to deal with it. Here's why we have to deal with this. All right. Because Carnegie says it was the most tragic thing in his life. Mm -hmm. It's Um, the most controversial thing. It's the most controversial thing. When you Google him, I think people's interpretation of it is a little simple, is oversimplified. Because what they want to say is, oh, you know, he gave us all these libraries, but he also presided over the one of the most violent, you know, labor management disputes in history. And not that that's wrong. There's a lot more subtlety to it than that. It's not that simple. But it is very controversial. In fact, we are going to give Homestead its own episode. So that will be it for today. And we will get into Homestead next week. Thank you very much for listening. Also, thank you, Evan Cresta, for editing and mixing this episode and we hope that you join us on our facebook group or at onceuponlifetimepodcast.com 